Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Those remaining in the sanctuary should open their Bibles to the book of Mark. We're still in chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, there are paperback Bibles underneath the chairs. You can find one, and I think it's page 491, paperback Bibles. will be very helpful to you if you can follow along with the text. Mark chapter 6, our verses are 45 to 56. Mark 6, 45 to 56. Before we get into the text, um, I want to remind you about an event coming up. 1 Peter 3, 15 commands us to make a defense for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and respect. Uh, that word for defense in that passage is uh, apologia. It's the word from which we get our English word apology, but it's also the word from which we get our word apologetics. And apologetics is simply the task um, of defending the Christian faith against accusations and objections that come to it. So apologetics, particularly in this day and age, very, very important discipline for us. And we are going to be offering our first, hopefully, annual apologetics conference coming up November 4 and 5 here at New Life. Our speakers will be Uh, These two men pictured on the screen, that's Jim Spiegel there to the left. Many of you know Jim, used to be a member here, lives now in Bloomington. We just prayed for uh, his wife, Amy's father. So Jim will be here, also a guy named Paul Copan. Uh, Both of these men are well-known, highly respected um, teachers, authors, scholars. So we're very privileged to have them with us. And the theme of the conference this year will probably be changing the sub-theme from year to year. It's always going to be about apologetics, but this year it will be about the morality of the Christian faith. And the reason that we're going to be talking about that is because that is one of the most frequent accusations or objections to the Christian faith today. Um, People don't necessarily spend a lot of time saying Christianity is false. What people say a lot today is that Christianity is immoral, So that's kind of a new charge for Christians to know how to respond to. Lots of controversial ethical issues come up in our culture. And so that's what these two men are going to be talking about, issues like sexuality, warfare, abortion, slavery, as they are presented in the Scriptures. So how, as Christians, do we make a defense for what the Bible says on all of these issues? That's the theme of the conference. So um, keep in mind that this is a free conference, so uh, no excuse not to be there. So please uh, put this on your calendar, and please consider now who you might invite among friends and neighbors, of course open to Christians looking to know how to defend their faith, but probably a good um, event to bring your non-Christian friends to as well. There will be a Q&A session at the end, Um, so we're really excited about this, hope you are too. Again, Friday night, November 4, Saturday morning, November 5. All right, last week, as we continued through this book of Mark, you might recall that I mentioned a a survey that was conducted by a ministry called Ligonier, and the survey was exploring the doctrinal views of evangelical Christians. And uh, the survey, as I shared last week, mentioned 
or found that 43% of evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. 43%, so that's almost half of evangelicals. Evangelicals, we're not talking Americans, we're talking evangelicals. We're not talking liberal mainline churches, we're talking evangelicals, those who would consider to take the Bible very, very seriously. Almost half said that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Now that's, that's troubling, because... Uh, Jesus' divinity is one of the main central doctrines of our faith. And it just so happens, as we're going through Mark, that we arrive here at a passage that gives some substantial teaching on this very question of the divinity of Christ. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Many of you may be familiar with this. Maybe to some of you this is new. Maybe those of you who are familiar with this and are not really sure how it's presented in the Bible or why it's important to believe. So, that's what we're going to be talking about today, the divinity of Christ. Um, and so, to, to be clear, what, what I mean when I say this is, is not, that, not that Jesus is God-like, that he's, that he's like a God or resembles a God. I, I'm also not saying that Jesus is just a God, like he's one God and a pantheon of many different gods. Nor are we saying that Jesus is God as a way of just giving him high praise. Um, music fans might know that back in the 60s, when Eric Clapton was a little more famous maybe than he is now, Eric Clapton, very famous guitarist, somebody um, spray painted on a wall in London this phrase Clapton is God. And this became this kind of catchphrase that a lot of music fans kind of embraced, particularly fans of of Eric Clapton. Clapton is God. Now, I don't know if they meant that literally. Probably what they meant was, we just want to give him the highest praise possible because he's such a great guitarist. So we say Clapton is God. When we say Jesus is God, that, that's not what we're saying either. What we're saying is that the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present deity who has planned the beginning from the end and who holds the universe together and has thrown all the stars into the sky and knows the name of each one has come to us in a man named Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we're saying. Now, if you're a Christian for a long time, that might strike you as, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. But that ought to blow your mind. That that ought to lift your heart, to, to think that that is at the center of the Christian faith. God coming to us as a man. I, I want to clarify here also that I'm not suggesting that to be a Christian, all you got to do is check the right theological boxes, get all your theology right, and you're okay, right? I mean, we know that Christianity is about living humbly, it's about being faithful, in hard times, it's about loving one another and loving our enemies. Being a Christian is more about just being theologically correct. But what we believe doctrinally will have a lot to do with how we live. And this is central, this doctrine of Jesus' divinity to what we believe. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Last week, the feeding of the 5,000 at uh, Mark 6. <clears throat> and right on the heels of that, we have this uh, this other very well-known famous miracle, not the feeding of 5,000, but Jesus 
walking on water. <laughs> An unbelievable miracle, and that's what Mark is going to tell us about here. So if you're able to stand, please do so, and let me read this passage to us. Mark 6, 45 to 56. <clears throat> it says, Immediately he, that's Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Holy Spirit, would you please give us ears to hear and open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right. Jesus and divinity, the divinity of Christ. We'll consider three things, and the first is this. Let's consider the, the prayer of the divine Jesus, the prayer of the divine Jesus. So, this passage, starting in verse 45, picks up where we left off, as I said last time, with the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 people, more than 5,000, we learned. It wasn't just men, but women and children as well. And after the feeding was over, the leftovers are picked up, and Jesus disperses the crowd. And you might remember that it was very late in the evening. That's why the disciples began to be concerned about people getting hungry. And so it's late, the feeding is over, and the passage begins here in 45, verse 45 with Jesus giving a direction to his disciples. He says, get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida. So this is uh, the uh, Sea of Galilee, and this is where the last several sermons have kind of focused, where they've been set. Jesus and the disciples have been kind of going back and forth over this this lake, this sea. So he commands them, get in the boat, go to Bethsaida. And the disciples do that. And afterward, verse 46 says that Jesus leaves them and he goes up on the mountain to pray. Now, last week, remember, we talked about the importance of getting away ourselves. We need to get away and be with Jesus. And here we see that apparently that was important to Jesus as well, that Jesus individually, by himself, had to get away. And here he leaves all the commotion and the crowds and goes up in this mountain to pray. Now, we're just going to pause here for, for a moment and reflect on this a little bit. 
Because what I've been telling you here is that Jesus is, is God, God in the flesh. And yet I'm also telling you, according to this text, that Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. And so who did he pray to? Well, we presume he's praying to God. But didn't we just say that Jesus is God? So who is Jesus praying to? If Jesus is God and Jesus is praying, does that mean Jesus is praying to himself? Or do we conclude from the fact that he's praying to God that maybe Jesus isn't God? Because why would God pray to God? Isn't it just people who pray to God? But here we have a man, Jesus, praying to God, but we're saying Jesus is God. So what? what's going on here? So we need to explain this, take a few moments here to talk about this. It's impossible to really understand what's going on here unless we have some understanding of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And so we don't hear a lot about the the Trinity, um, but it's absolutely essential to understanding how um, Jesus functions here on the pages of Scripture. So what we mean when we say the Trinity is that the Christian God is one in essence or substance, He's one, so Christianity is what we would say monotheistic. Judaism, Islam, also monotheistic religions. We believe there is one God. So God is one in essence, but He's three in divine persons. There are three divine persons within the one God, and these three persons are distinct from one another. And we call these three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each of these persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are equal in power, equal in glory, equal in divinity, all equally worthy of our devotion and our worship and our submission. Three distinct persons, and yet still one God. So we're not talking about God cut up into three parts, like a pie that you might cut up into three pieces. And we're not saying there are three gods. We're monotheistic. There's one God. We're also not saying that there are three manifestations of God, as if God is morphing from one person to another over time. We're not saying that either. What we're saying is that there is one God in three distinct persons who have existed simultaneously for all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is nothing like this in all of the world's religions. If you want to know one thing that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion, this is it. We believe in a God who is three and one, and that's not a logical contradiction because they're not three and one in the exact same way. We're saying God is one in substance or essence. He's three in person. But it's so important for us to get this because, you know, I think I'm prepared to say that you can't be a a Christian and reject the Trinity. This is foundational. A guy named Michael Reeves has written a good book called... um, delighting in the Trinity, he says this, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. 
the truth that shapes and beautifies all the others. The Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. And so if you're hearing this and you're thinking, this just sounds weird. You're saying he's one, you're saying he's three, essence, substance, persons. I mean, you know, it seems kind of confusing. I mean, really, when you stand back and think about it, when we're talking about an eternal God who has created the universe, wouldn't we expect he'd be a little different than we would expect? Wouldn't you expect that he'd be something that would kind of blow our minds? Wouldn't you expect that he'd be somebody that's kind of beyond our comprehension? An easy-to-understand God cannot really be God. This is a, a God who is beyond us, and yet a God who reveals us in such simplicity that actually even the simplest-minded person can get the gospel. Um, <clears throat> Just as a reminder, you know, the way Mark began his whole gospel was saying this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's whole intent here in the book of Mark is to tell us that Jesus is the Son of God. So we already have this kind of Trinitarian language at work in the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 1. All of this should help us make sense of what's happening here when we see Jesus going to the mountaintop to pray, if we think in a Trinitarian way. Because what we're saying here is that although the Father and the Son, we're not talking about the Spirit so much, the Spirit is part of the Trinity, but we're going we're to set the Spirit aside just for our purposes in this text. We're saying the Father and the Son are, again, equal in power and glory, they're equally divine, but the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. So there's a distinction between the two. There is an I-thou relationship that exists between Father and Son so that they relate to each other as distinct personalities or persons. So when you look to the Scriptures, you'll see things like the Father loves the Son. And that doesn't make any sense if we think of the Father and the Son as completely the same. We know that the Son obeys the Father. We know that the Father sends the Son, right? That's the, the gospel. God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. There has to be a distinction between the two for the Father to send the other. And so we also see that distinction right here in Mark because we see the Son praying to the Father. There's kind of an order also in the persons of the Trinity. And so this gets even a little trickier because we will say that the first person of the Trinity is the Father, the second the Son, and the third the Holy Spirit. There's an order. Now, there's not a chronological order. What we're not saying is that one of the persons of the Trinity came before the others or preceded the others in time. No. All three persons of the Trinity are eternal. The Son was not created. We don't say that the Father created the Son because the Son is just as eternal as the Father. So there is an order here that's not chronological. There's also an order here that is not according to nature. In other words, we're not, when we say first, second, third person of the Trinity, that doesn't mean the first person is greater than the second person or the second person is greater than the third person. So there's no order in terms of nature. The order is a, a personal order. It's an order that shapes how the persons of the Trinity relate to one another. 
And that's what we're seeing here with Jesus praying to the Father. Joel Beakey, or Michael Reeves, uh, yeah, Joel Beakey, says this, the Father always leads and the Son always follows. The Son cannot act independently of the Father, not for lack of power, but because it would contradict His relation as the Son to the Father. The Son exists to submit to the Father, to obey the Father, to, to be the one righteous man who has ever lived in the history of the world. You see, everything the Son does in subjection of the Father is for us who have failed and neglected to submit to the Father in all aspects of our lives. So the Son submits to the Father in all things. So that's, that, that's what explains all, all of this. Jesus, the divine Son, in our passage, is praying to the divine Father. Two distinct persons, but the Son submitting to the Father. I think what we take from all of this is, is, is knowing this, that at the very core of the essence or the being of God is relationship and intimacy and personal connection. God is not like gravity. It's, he's not like this impersonal abstraction in the universe. He's not a mere power. He's a person. And He's a person who naturally loves. That's what the Scripture means when it says God is love. The reason we can say God is love is that He is a community of persons interacting with one another, loving one another, cherishing, glorifying one another. And if God is at His essence personal, what that means is that you can know Him. You can have personal relationship with Him. And so, the, the, this whole Trinitarian thing makes really good sense of the gospel, too, when you think about it, because, you know, the gospel tells us that Jesus, the Son, died on the cross. So, a natural question might be, well, if Jesus is God, is God dying? I mean, who was running the universe during the days when Jesus was in the tomb? How do you answer that? Apart from the Trinity, Jesus in His humanity died but God lived. And so, Michael Reeves again says this, the Father in His great love sends the Son, and the Son, delighting to do the will of the Father, goes in obedience to the Father. God makes no third party suffer to achieve atonement. It's not like God says, you, you, you do it, someone else needs to pay for the sins of humanity. No, God says, I'm going to do it but I'm going to do it by Father sending the Son. God makes no third party suffer to achieve the atonement. The one who dies is the Lamb of God, the Son. And it means that nobody but God contributes to the work of salvation. The Father, Son, and Spirit accomplish it all. It's the Father's plan. It's the Son who comes and does the work, living and dying and being resurrected. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes and opens your eyes and my eyes to believe it. It's fully a gracious work of God. And so, that's a lot to say just based on Jesus going up to the mountain to pray. <laughs> I understand, but hopefully that kind of makes better sense of that and introduces us to this very important consideration of the Trinity. So, let, let's go on to the second point and consider the power of the divine Jesus. The power of the divine Jesus. Let's return to our story here, going back to verse 47. 
<clears throat> see the disciples are in the boat and they're out on the sea. Jesus, remember, sent them off. Jesus is on land. And we see here that Jesus is watching, verse 48. He's watching the disciples. And he sees that they are struggling. They're making headway painfully, it says. There's, there's wind pushing against them. And so they're, they're making very, very slow progress here. This is a struggle for them. And then this truly amazing and astounding thing happens. It says it's during the fourth watch of the night, middle of verse 48, that would be between 3 and 6 a.m., so just before dawn. Remember again, very late, would have taken about six to eight hours to get across the Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, the, they cleaned up after the feeding, and it was already late, so this is going into the night, and so like all night long, they're out here um, rowing. Just as a side note, if you look down to verse 53, notice it says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Now, the careful reader will kind of notice that because going back to verse 45, remember Jesus said, go to Bethsaida. They didn't wind up at Bethsaida. They wound up at Gennesaret, probably because the wind was just so strong it blew them off course. And when they got to Gennesaret, they said, let's just call it a day. And they got out and perhaps went to Bethsaida at a later time. So, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's a hard struggle for the disciples, but here they are in the boat, the wind is heavy, in the midst of their struggle, and they gaze out on the water, and they see this figure approaching. So, this is nighttime, of course. Um, they're trying to make this out. It says in verse 49, they, they think it's a ghost. Uh, they're they're kind of scared. What's going on? Probably touch tapping each other on the shoulder, hey, look at, look at that. What, what is that? And here comes this figure. And, and they're probably you know, rubbing their eyes, looking again. What, what's going on? And as the figure draws closer, they realize this is Jesus himself standing on the water, walking on the water. Now, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we can interpret here what's, what's going on. Um, I don't know if you know about this. There's an, an animal, a lizard. It's called a basilisk. And a basilisk is a, is a lizard that is so light and so fast that it can run across the surface of the water and, and barely dip into the water at all. And another name for a basilisk is a Jesus lizard. They call it a Jesus lizard. So what, what's getting that lizard across the water is a combination of its speed and its light weight. That's not what's going on here with Jesus. He's not running across the water. This is not staying above water by momentum. This is staying above water by an absolute miracle. This is Jesus asserting His power to transcend the natural boundaries of the created order and showing that he does as he wishes with the world. <laughs> Walking on water. There are, if you look at different commentaries, different explanations. I read recently an oceanographer said actually he was walking on ice. You know, it's a, I guess I can't tell you how cold it was at that time, but there's certainly no evidence for that. 
Some say it was an optical illusion. There was maybe a sandbar in the middle of the lake, and he was actually on the sandbar, and it looked like he was walking on water. Some say that, well, the water was just really shallow at that point, and so it looked like he was walking on water. None of that is consistent, though, with what we read in the passage, because the disciples are experienced fishermen. They've been out on this lake many, many times. They know it well. Verse 50 says they were terrified. They didn't say, here comes a figure, oh yeah, he must be walking on that sandbar that we know is there. Or, oh yeah, it is 10 degrees below zero, so he's just on the ice, you know, which wouldn't explain why the boat is moving through the water to begin with. The fishermen knew the lake. They knew it well enough to know that this is something that they have never seen before. That's why they're terrified. This is Jesus walking on the water. Now, all of this just seems perhaps impossible. It tests our, our willingness to believe miraculous things. But if we allow for the fact that Jesus is not an ordinary man, that Jesus is someone extraordinary, that maybe even Jesus is God in the flesh, then suddenly this is not really so hard to believe. Because this is what Jesus, I believe, is intending to do in this passage. As He comes to the disciples, He's not declaring His divinity as He does in other parts of the Scriptures. He's displaying His divinity. Because who is it who walks on water? Well, you can look to various passages of Scripture. Here's Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Job 38. This is God speaking. And He's speaking to Job. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked on the recesses of the deep? These fishermen, these disciples are fishermen, but they're Jewish fishermen too. And, and they know their scriptures, and perhaps these passages should have come to mind. Here's another uh, reason why I would say that Jesus is seeking to display His divinity here, because in verse 49, we read that Jesus intended to pass them by, it says. When they saw Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and He cried out, uh, excuse me, end of verse 48, He meant to pass them by. Now, that's kind of an odd thing. What, why would he say that, or why would the text say that? I, I, think, I think the better way to read this is not he meant to pass them by as if he meant to, to, to pass them by, like go ahead of them, like it was a race and he was trying to beat them to the other side. I don't think that's what is meant by pass them by. I, I think what is meant is he meant to pass them by. In other words, he meant to show himself to them. He meant to display himself. He meant to come by them in a way that he was visible to them, is what this means. And I think, again, if we consider the Old Testament, if you can rack your brain for a time when God passed by someone, does that ring any bells? God passing by. Do you remember in Exodus 33, Moses and God are having a conversation. And Moses calls out to God and says, God, please show me your glory. What Moses wants to see is the glory and the goodness of God, and God agrees to do it. And what he says in two occasions in Exodus 33 is, all my goodness and my glory will pass before you. You're going to see me. You're going to see God. 
Moses. There's certain parts, you know, his backside, limits to what he could see. But he granted Moses' wish to behold God as God passed by. And now we have Jesus coming, doing something that only God can do, walking on water, passing by to display to them his divinity. I think that's got to be a main point we draw from this. Jesus showing us his divinity, not necessarily declaring it. Plenty of passages in Scripture, once again, where he does that. I and the Father are one, for instance, he says in John 10. Um, But here he is displaying. But here's something I think that's extraordinary and important for us to consider, that the glory of God, actually, the, the place where we see the glory of God in its fullest display is actually not something miraculous like this. Where we see the glory of God displayed in its most profound and miraculous way is when this God-man goes to a cross and gives his life for sinners. That's the glory of God. That's where we see God's glory in its most powerful display. So, Jesus walking on water. Yes, really not hard for someone who made the waters and created the universe. And so we're reminded of our call to worship here, Colossians 1, referring to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and for him, including the oceans of the world. God can do this. (laughs) No problem. Let's go on to the last point and consider the presence of now, of the divine Jesus, the presence of the divine Jesus. So a common perception that many people have when they think about God is that if there is a God, He is certainly so transcendent and so distant and so remote and so busy with other things, how could He possibly be concerned about me? I wonder if you ever thought that about God. God has no interest in me. God doesn't notice me. God doesn't have time for me. Well, let's see what happens in the text. Notice what happens here. Uh, As I already mentioned, as the disciples here are struggling in the boat, we we see that that Jesus is, is watching, and He notes that they're struggling. That's why He comes down onto the lake. He walks on the lake. He passes by and reveals His divinity. But he, he draws close to them. Do you see that? In verse 50, they all saw him, were de- terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he says, Take heart, that is, be encouraged. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now that phrase, it is I, very interesting. In, in the Greek, it's actually translated as I am. I am. Which is what God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asked God, who should I tell the Israelites is sending me to them? And God says, tell them I am is sending you. So there's God identifying himself as I am. Here in this verse 50, Jesus comes to the disciples and says, I am, it is I, I am. Another here, I think, by his words, a claim to divinity. And he says, do not be afraid. But Maybe what's more astounding is the next thing that happens, because he doesn't just speak to them this word. And by the way, just that word is enough comfort for us sometimes, you know? Just sometimes the, the best thing you can say to somebody who is really struggling is, it's going to be okay. I mean, sometimes just that word alone is enough to lift fear. Do not be afraid. 
going to be okay. And so Jesus says these words, the disciples are, are hearing them, but what happens next here is that Jesus actually gets in the boat with them in verse 51. And you see that as soon as he gets in, the wind ceased. The storm stops. Reminds us of a previous passage, right, where there was a storm and the disciples in a boat. The wind ceases as Jesus gets in the boat. He draws close. He becomes present. And so, friends, right now, maybe you feel like you're rowing in a boat against the wind. Maybe you feel like you're in an uphill battle right now in some part of your life, and you, you are just worn out and you are perplexed, and you perhaps feel like Jesus is not watching, but I'm telling you, He is. And you feel like He doesn't care, but I'm telling you, He does. And you feel like He's too busy, but I'm telling you, He isn't. He's watching. He cares. He notices your struggles, your pains, and your struggles. Struggles, pains, and difficulties. And He draws near. This is what Jesus said, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He doesn't promise He's going to necessarily make the problem easier, but He does promise that He will be with you. When I was growing up, our family very often traveled to Florida for vacation over the Christmas holidays, and we would always drive. Uh, we had a station wagon at one time, we had a van at another time, and we would always leave, pack everything up, and drive down in two or three days, about a thousand-mile trip, long trip. And, you know, there were times when we ran into some difficulties. I remember there was a time we got into southern Georgia, northern Florida, and there was an ice storm. And there were semis um, uh, sped off the road. Um, there was just standstill traffic. Traffic was reduced about one mile an hour. It, it was just super slick. There were people driving in the median and driving on the shoulder. It was just an absolute mess. And <clears throat> there was another time we were going to Florida in the station wagon. We had all of our luggage up on top. And somehow, I guess my... I don't know what happened, but it just it flew off the top of our car and down onto the interstate and just burst out all our stuff. And here comes these cars, and they're running over all of our belongings. And so we had to pull over and go out on the interstate when the traffic went by and gathered up our stuff. And, you know, it was, a, it was an alarming time. So in, in all of our trips to, to Florida, you know, we have faced some obstacles. But, but I'll tell you this, in all of those times that we traveled, I never, ever worried about whether we were going to get to our destination. And the reason why is because my dad was in the driver's seat. My father was driving, and I just trusted him implicitly to get where we were going. In fact, very often, I just lay down in the back of the station wagon or the back seat of the van, go to sleep, because God, because my dad was in charge my dad was in control. My father was in the van. And, Father, and friends, whatever you're dealing with right now, God is in the boat with you. God is in control. If I can trust my father to get us to Florida, our destination, you can trust your father to get you to your destination, no matter what kind of trouble or what kind of difficulty you're 
facing right now. And so that's what the disciples meet with here, this encouragement. But the chapter ends, verses 53 to the end, verse 53 to 56, the chapter ends with kind of a summary of Jesus' activity, ministry activity here. We see that there's lots of uh, sick people who are being brought to, to Jesus, and you know this is kind of a repetition of everything that Jesus has been doing, really through the course of the book of Mark. We see that people were thinking that if he could just touch his garment, they would be healed, and, and that actually happened. Um, but one last thing I'll, I'll show you before we close, if you look to verse 54... Very interesting. It says, when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized Him. And the reason why that's so interesting is because the disciples didn't recognize Him. The crowds knew something of who He was. Apparently, the disciples didn't. Look back to verse 52. After Jesus appears to them, gets in the boat, it says, they didn't understand about the loaves. They they didn't get it when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, and fed more than 5,000 people. And they don't understand about Jesus walking on the water either. They, they don't get it. And the reason why is because their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand because their hearts are hardened. And I think if you read that text, the question that we all have to ask, and the question that I ask to you today, is do you understand? Do you understand what the central point of the gospel is. That is that God in the flesh has come into this world to save you. Do you understand that? Or are your hearts hardened? Some people say seeing is believing. You know, you you hear that a lot. Seeing is believing. Oh, if I could just see it, I would believe. Seeing is believing. Not always, friends. Because these disciples had a front row seat to everything that Jesus had been doing. They saw so much of His teaching, so many miracles, so many healings, and their hearts are hard. Let this not be said of you, friends. Let it not be said of you that your hearts are hard. Let it not be said of you that you don't understand. God has had mercy on us, and He has entered our world in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, who is also the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And He is resurrected from the dead. And if you would repent and turn, place your faith in Him, you will be saved. Friends, faith comes not by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing the Word of Christ. So believe and be saved. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for coming near to us, Jesus. Thank You for Your power displayed in your miraculous works. Thank you for showing us the importance of praying and entering into communion with our Father. And we thank you that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you have finished our salvation, that you have done it all and given it to us by grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.